Please turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 16. And there the word of Christ says this. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be accounted with those who are the righteous. Lord, knowing that, Lord, those who fear you and who esteem your name belong to you, that they are members of your household, Lord, that you have taken them as your own treasured possession. And that, Lord, you will spare them as a man spares his son. Lord, this is what we want to be true of us. Even though we know in this present life, Lord, it appears that there is little to no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. In terms of the way that the one is treated over the other. Though many times it even seems as if the wicked are favored in this life. And yet we know from your word that that certainly is not the case that you love the righteous, but your soul hates the wicked. And Lord, we pray that this distinction, Lord, it would be manifested among us. Lord, that it would be clear, Lord, in the way that we live, that we are your children and that we belong to the righteous. And then, Lord, that one day you would make this clear and obvious to all men, Lord, by separating the sheep from the goats. So, Lord, teach us today that there is a day coming in which men will be divided into the righteous and the wicked, and that we better make sure that we are not accounted with the wicked so that we are not destroyed. Lord, teach us then to test our faith, to examine ourselves, and Lord, to make sure that we are truly repentant and that we are truly your children. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage last week where the prophet is recording the response of the righteous to the message that he has been preaching to the people. Right? Though the prophet cast his seed far and wide, many would not listen to him, but stubbornly continued in the hardness of their heart. However, there were some who listened, some who took it to heart, some who turned away from their sins, and some who walked in the ways of the Lord. And this is how it is in every generation. Many are called, but only a few have been chosen by God. And only those are the ones who are quickened by the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who will receive the word of the Lord with meekness, while the rest of them will continue in unbelief. This is as it says in Romans 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Some obtained it, the elect, but the rest of them were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it was in the days of the prophet. There were some. There were those who feared the Lord who spoke to one another. They spoke to one another concerning the message of the prophet. They spoke to one another about sin and judgment and righteousness and repentance and salvation. They encouraged one another to live a godly life, 
to be faithful, to reject the sins of the nation, and to repent of their sins and walk in the ways of the Lord. And there we saw last week that when those people did that, the Lord paid attention to them. The Lord heard them. He had a book of remembrance written before him of those who feared him and esteemed his name. So we were taught that those who truly repent of sin do not labor in vain. Those who fear the Lord are not chasing after the wind because God does hear the cries of those who are brokenhearted over their sin. He does listen to the repentant sinner and he will grant him mercy in his time of need. In due time, he will exalt those who are humbled over sin. And so the naysayers and critics were proven wrong. Those who said, it is vain to serve God, right? What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is what they were saying in Malachi chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It is vain to serve God. Right? What is the point? Why would we do these things? This is what the world believes. And certainly these things would be true if it were not for the eternal glories that are awaiting those who fear the Lord. This is as the Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? If our hope is only in this life, then it is vain to serve the Lord. If it is only in this life, then we are to be pitied. If it is only in this life, then what is the point of repenting of our sin and living a godly life? But our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in the life to come. And this is why it is not vain to repent of sin and serve the Lord. And the Lord promises to confer great blessings upon those who repent. So we are assured by God's own testimony, right, by a threefold confirmation, The Lord paid attention, the Lord heard them, and the Lord wrote a book of remembrance before him. We are encouraged then to repent of our sins, to serve the Lord, and to know that God will in due time richly bless us if we will do so. And that is what we turn to this week. What are these blessings? What are the blessings that God grants to repentant sinners? Well, notice Malachi 3.17, what the prophet says. There it says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. There he says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. The Lord announces that those who repent of sin, those who believe in Christ for salvation, They belong to him. They are God's. They are mine, says the Lord of hosts, right? Mine in the sense that of all of the world and all the people of the world, the righteous, the repentant, they are God's special treasure, his peculiar possession upon all the earth. Though it is true that all of the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth belong to the Lord, right? The earth and the fullness thereof, all of it is God's. Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 1, establishes this truth. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, 
the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth and the fullness of it, the world and all who dwell therein, all of it belongs to the Lord. It all is God's in the sense that God created all things and he is the rightful possessor or owner of all the earth. This is as it says in Psalm 50 verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle of a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Right, so in terms of creation and possession, the earth belongs to the Lord. All of the resources belong to the Lord. All of the animals belong to the Lord. All of the people belong to the Lord. They are His. He created us. He gave us life. He owns each and every one of us. But here, in our passage, He means it not in the sense of creation, but in the sense of redemption. That those who repent are God's unique, special possession in all of the earth in that God takes us as his own. He adopts us into his family so that we belong to God in a way that the wicked do not. That the righteous are God's peculiar treasure, his special possession, and they belong to God in a way that the wicked, the animals, the trees, the, the earth, that they do not belong to God. Notice Genesis 18. Genesis chapter 18, this is what was said concerning Abraham, who we know was the man of faith. Abraham chapter 8, Abraham, Genesis, Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. It is about Abraham though. 18, 16 says, Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and sent them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done what they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So there, God makes a distinction between Abraham and the rest of the world, right? That God has known Abraham. God has chosen Abraham. He did things for Abraham that he did not do for other men. Right? That he was his peculiar, special possession in all of the earth. God gave to him salvation. And Abraham is called the friend of God. That was not true of all men during the time of Abraham. Most men during that time were not friends of God. They were enemies of God because they lived in their sin. But when a man repents of his sin, when he trusts in Christ for salvation... God no longer regards that man as his enemy, but now that man becomes the friend of God or a son of God, a child of God, a member of the household of faith. And this is what the Lord means here in Malachi 3.17. They shall be mine. Right? That repentant sinner, God says, he belongs to me. He is my possession. He is a member of my family. The repentant sinner is a brand plucked out of the fire that is preserved by God and kept from 
destruction. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Zechariah 3, 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is what is true of all the elect. They are brands plucked from the fire. They have been called out of the world, the world that is about to be destroyed by fire. God calls them out of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan, and now they belong to God and are citizens of this heavenly kingdom. And this is true of those who repent of sin. So this is a great incentive to repent, right? Isn't it better to be in God's household than to, be, than to belong to Satan? Don't we want to be a citizen of the kingdom of light rather than the kingdom of darkness? Well, only those who repent belong to God in this way. It is not true of the wicked. It is not true of those who practice sin. It is not true of those who refuse to repent but continue living in their unbelief and their obstinate pride. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2 teaches this in verse 9. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonder, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There, it says that they are those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is the wicked. They refuse. They will not repent of their sins. So they do not belong to the Lord. But those who repent do belong to the Lord. This is true now, but this truth will be manifested clearly or publicly or outwardly in the day when he says, I make up my treasured possession, right? The repentant belong to God in this life. The repentant are God's treasured possession in this life. They are the apple of his eye. They are the bride of Christ. They are the body of Christ, right? Yet in this present world, those who are God's treasured possession are regarded and treated as the scum of the earth, right? Because of sufferings and because of persecutions, right? God does not preserve and keep his people in this life from all evil and from all suffering. Rather, God sends upon them suffering and evil in order to test them and in order to try their faith. So if the repentant are God's treasured possession, 
then why are they treated like the scum of the earth? While there are many wicked persons, many unrepentant people who are living a life of ease and comfort and luxury. Isn't this the way it is in this present life? Right? It seems as if, right? It appears as if there is no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Right? In terms of what happens to them outwardly, right? Many of the things are exactly the same. The sun shines on both the righteous and the wicked. The rain falls on the field of the righteous man and the field of the wicked man. Right? The one has life, the other has life. The one has daily bread, the other has daily bread. Even in terms of affliction. It is not the wicked who are merely afflicted, but they get sick, but so do righteous people. They die, but so do they. Right? They have loved ones that pass away. Tragically, so do righteous people. And many times it appears that actually God favors the wicked over the righteous because they are not afflicted like the rest of mankind. Many of the most prosperous, those who are living in the greatest luxury, who have the greatest comforts in life, are not godly people. They're not fearing God. They're not walking in his ways. So when we look at this present world and the outward conditions of men, it does not appear, right, from our eyesight that God favors the righteous over the wicked. Many times it appears that he prefers the wicked over the righteous. And that is because God has not yet manifested to the world who we are. Right? When the world sees the sufferings, the hardships, the persecutions of the righteous, they conclude that God does not love them, that God is not for them, that they are not God's children, that they are not God's treasured possession. Because if they were God's, and if they belong to Him, if He loves them so much, then why would He treat them in such miserable ways? Isn't this what was true of Christ? And this will be true of all believers in this world. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us concerning Christ that He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with Grief. He didn't live a life of ease and luxury. He didn't have a life of comfort, but rather his life was marked by constant, continual sorrow and hardships. And when you look at his hardships, it appears that God does not favor him and that God does not love him. And this was the conclusion that the wicked drew from these things. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Right? We did not esteem him and they thought God did not esteem him that God did not love him and care for him. This is Matthew 27. Matthew 27, this is the basis of much of the derision that they're bringing toward Christ when he's hanging on the cross. Matthew 27, 39. Talk about cruelty and uh, kicking a man when he's on the ground. This is what these people were doing to him. Matthew 27, 39 says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. 
If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Isn't that what they're saying? He says he's the Son of God. Well, then let God save him. Let God deliver him. Let God manifest it to us that he is the Son of God and that God does love him and that he does trust in God and that God is going to save him. And in his condition, when they saw that, their perception was that God had rejected Christ when there was nothing further from the truth. Even on the cross, right? even in the midst of his greatest sufferings, Jesus was still the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Even on the cross, He was still the beloved Son of God with whom the Father was well pleased. Yet God's love for Him, God's favor for Him, was hidden from men because of His sufferings. It appeared that He was despised. It appeared that He was rejected. It appeared that God did not care for him, that God had no regard for him. But then what happened? All of that changed suddenly at his resurrection. What was true during the crucifixion was manifested outwardly, publicly, clearly, when God bestowed upon Christ glory and honor and gave him a name that is above every name. God openly displayed his love and his approval of Christ by raising him from the dead. And this is how it will be with the repentant sinners as well. In this life, we will be regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In this life, we will be treated like the scum of the earth. Though we are God's treasured possession now, It will appear, it will look like we are despised and rejected by God until the day when God makes up his treasured possession. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this was the testimony of the Apostle Paul concerning his own life and ministry. First Corinthians 4, verse 8 says, Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. In would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ." We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Right When you see a man in that condition, hunger, thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, scum of the earth, refuse? Does it appear that God loves him? Does it appear that this man is God's treasured possession? But at this time, was the Apostle Paul God's treasured possession? Absolutely. He was his 
holy apostle who was used by God in a great and mighty way. Also, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, this is the testimony of many men and women of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, we'll pick up in verse 36. Hebrews eleven thirty six. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Here, these miserable creatures, right, wandering about the face of the earth, living in dens and caves, right, being mocked, flogged, ridiculed, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, chained, imprisoned, stoned, right, killed with the sword, sawn in two, wearing the skins of sheep and goats. And here, the testimony of the apostle is that these are men of whom the world was not worthy. The world did not even deserve to have these men occupy it, to have these men even living on the face of this corrupt earth. And yet, you see them, men like that, and they think, how could God love this person? How could this one be his treasured possession? How could he belong to the Lord? And if this is how God treats his children, then why on earth would I ever want to serve the Lord? Why would I want to repent of my sin if this is what God does to his children? And this is why they conclude in chapter 3, 15, it is vain to serve the Lord because they're not looking with the eyes of faith. You have to look beyond this present world and the sufferings and afflictions of the righteous in this world to see the end result. And that's what the prophet is confirming to us here, right? They are God's. And in the day when God makes up his treasured possession, he will reveal, he will manifest to the whole world those who belong to him and what he thinks about them and how he loves them. We are God's children now. We are his treasured possession now at this very moment if we have repented of our sins and if we have trusted in Christ. But the world cannot see this because they are not looking with faith. We see it because we believe the promises of Scripture and we wait for God to display this reality to the world. And in due time, He will do it. On the day when He makes up His treasured possession. On what day? Right? The day. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day that is coming when God will clearly display to all that the righteous belong to Him, that He loves them, and that it is not vain to repent of our sins, and it is not vain to serve the Lord. 1 John chapter 3. Right, What is on the inside now will come to the outside. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
right? Just as it was with Christ. They could not see the glory of Christ. They did not know who Christ was because they did not know his Father. So they won't know who we are. They don't know that we are children of God, but that is what we are now, right? At this very moment, this is what we are. Then verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are this now, but what we will be has not yet been revealed. It has not appeared to this present world, yet it has not been made known. Now, how will this be made known? Right? How will it be displayed to all the world. Well, notice what he says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Though God does show his love towards us in this life, and even in this life, we have many evidences of God's fatherly kindness towards us. He hears our prayers. He forgives us of our sins. He provides us our daily bread. He gives us peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God gives to us his holy word. He gives to us the household of faith. Right? All of these and many more are evidences of God's love for us now. But ultimately, God's care and protection for his children will be seen on the day of judgment when he spares his children as a man spares his son. Those who repent of sin will be spared from the wrath of God that is coming upon this present world. This world and all of its inhabitants will be burned with fire by God, by the judgment of God. And it is only those who are the children of God who will be spared from the terrible outcome that this world is going to endure. The wicked will undergo the judgment of God, but the righteous, they will be delivered, they will be spared as a man spares his son. Luke 13. This is what Jesus taught. Luke 13. On the condition of repentance. Luke 13, verse 1 says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There is a greater tragedy than being killed by Pilate and having your blood mixed with the sacrifices. And there is a greater death than having a tower fall unexpectedly on your head. Right? Though no one wants to die in either one of these ways. Right? These are both unexpected, miserable outcomes, but as horrible as it would, to have your blood mixed with sacrifices, right? as horrible as it would be to have some tower fall unexpectedly on your head, there is a greater death that is coming for all men if they do not repent. And it doesn't compare in any way, shape, or form to these deaths. Right? It is a greater death. Right? The ungodly will perish. 
God will put them to death when he cast them into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And unless you repent of your sins, you're going to perish in the same way, right? You're all going to die. Maybe a tower will fall on your head, right? Or a bridge, right? You look up under there. Those things are unstable as can be. The infrastructure is all falling apart. That could happen. It could fall right on top of your head while you're driving home. Or perhaps there's some lunatic, some murderous monster. Was Pilate the only one of those? We've got all sorts of those people running around today that might kill us unexpectedly. Or perhaps a person lives a long, full life. But if you don't repent of your sins, one way or another, you're all going to perish. You're going to die ultimately, whether it's unexpectedly and tragically, or whether it's naturally, you're all going to die in this life. And then if you have not repented, you will die again in the life to come. Unless what? Unless you repent, is what Jesus says. Unless you repent, you're all going to perish. This is the same as John the Baptist. When he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Luke 3, 7, and 8. Or as Peter said on the day of Pentecost, save yourself from this crooked generation, Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Right? Save yourself from what? What is this crooked generation? What do they need to be saved from? It's the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming for this present world. And this is what we must flee And we flee the wrath to come by repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The world is passing away along with its lust. But the one who does the will of God, he will endure forever. 1 John 2, 17. When this world undergoes the fire of judgment, those who have repented of sin, they will be spared by God. They will be spared as a man spares his son, because sin no longer has dominion over them. Right? Both the righteous and the wicked will pass through the fire. But the wicked, because they are like chaff, will be consumed. While the righteous, because they are like gold and silver, will be purified. And they will come out dazzling and sparkling. On that day, then it will be clear and obvious to all who is worthless chaff and who it is that is the gold and silver. Who is the treasured possession? It will be clear who is a son and who is a slave, right? The slave does not abide forever. The son abides forever. And if the son sets you free, then you will be free. Indeed, you will be accounted with the sons. John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 34. John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Everyone who is a slave to sin Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not abide in the house forever. By nature, we are slaves. And by redemption, we become sons. And if Christ sets us free from sin, 
then we are free indeed. Then we are sons, we belong to the household, and we will be spared. We will abide forever in the household of faith if we have been set free from the Son. Now, one more point to consider before we move on to verse 18. Again, I call your attention to the fact that the repentant sinner is called a treasured possession of the Lord. A treasured possession, which we have to think about in terms of who we are. Who we are by nature and who we are according to our own sin. Right In our natural state, are we a treasured possession? In our natural sinful state, how does God see us? How are we viewed by him? What is our value before the Lord? Job chapter 25. We have to consider the kindness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, because this reality is not because of anything that we have done, but rather it's what God has done for us. Right? It is all based on his grace and mercy. Job chapter 25, verse 4. How then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, the son of man, who is a worm? Right? This is what we are by nature. Maggots, filthy worms before the Lord. Does anyone consider a maggot to be a valuable treasured possession? Does anyone consider a filthy worm to be a thing of value, something of great treasure? And of course we don't. Of course those things are detestable. They are detestable in our sight, and this is what we are in the sight of God according to our own sin, right? As it says in Romans chapter 5, that we were enemies of God, right? We were enemies of God when we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Enemies of God, maggots before God, worms before the Lord. Yet now, what are we called? A treasured possession. We are called a son. And this is not because of anything that we have done. It is not because of our own works. It is not because of our own goodness. It is not because we pulled up our bootstraps and we made ourselves something that we were not before. But rather, it is all based upon the work of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, what he has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the power of Christ to turn a maggot into a treasured possession, to turn a worm right into something of value, to turn an enemy into a son. And this is what he's done for us. And we should thank God for this. We should praise God. We should slap ourselves in the face every morning because it's too good to be true. How could God do this for us, seeing what we are? And how could we take pride in ourselves? How could we be puffed up against our fellow man, seeing that in our natural state, we're no better than any of the rest of them? That everything we have has been given to us by the grace of God. It is not based upon our works, our performance, or anything else that we have done. This is what God does for us. Right? He has turned us into his children. And if we are God's treasured possession, right? if Christ is not ashamed to call us his brothers, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, 
then we should not be ashamed to have God as our treasured possession, right? It's a two-way street. He has us as his possession. Well, we should have him as our possession. We should desire and want to know the Lord above every other thing in this life. We should not be ashamed to have him as our God, right? I will be their God and they will be my people, right? We are his people, but he also has to be our God, according to Jeremiah 31, 33. Okay, Malachi chapter 3, verse 18. Now, when all this happens, right, when all this goes down and God makes clear, makes known to the whole world who belongs to him, those who are his treasured possession, what will be the result? Verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Right, when God manifests that repentant sinners are his treasured possession in all the earth. When God spares them as a man spares his son, then once more the distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be seen. It will be without any doubt, without any refutation, that some men are righteous and other men are wicked. It'll be without any doubt that God loves the righteous, but that his soul hates the wicked. It will be very clear that there is a reward for the righteous, but the wicked will be cut off forever. Also notice here that the righteous are called those who serve God, and the wicked are those who do not serve God. Those who serve God day by day, right, in the way that they live, right, not only in the large things, but also in the simple, routine, daily task of life who are doing the will of God, who are wanting to please the Lord, who are wanting to live a life of obedience to God. They are the ones who are righteous. They are the ones who serve Him. And those who are not serving God day by day, not only in the big issues, but even in the small details of life, giving no thought to obeying or pleasing the Lord, this is what the prophet constitutes as wickedness. Right, so being wicked is not a designation merely for murderers, for thieves, for sorcerers, rapists, idolaters, though those are certainly wicked practices. But anyone who's not serving the Lord is designated by God as a wicked person. Amen. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Where There, it is the one who hears the word and does them, obeys them. This is the wise man. This is the one who serves God. This is the righteous. And the one who hears the word and does not obey them, this is the wicked man, right? This is the one who does not serve God. Now, I say this because 
there's only two designations on the day of judgment. You're either righteous or you're wicked. Certainly, Hitler and Stalin are wicked men. But so is the neighbor or the family member who might be friendly. They're not a menace to society. They pay their taxes, right? They go to work, right? They, they mow their yard. They keep a clean house, but they don't go to church. They don't serve the Lord. They don't give any thought to obeying God. They're just living their life, doing whatever they want to do. Well, according to this, if they're not serving God, then what are they? Which group will they be consigned to? They are the wicked. So there are only the two groups, the righteous and the wicked. And these two groups will be clearly manifested on the day of judgment. You will once more see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Here he says, once more. God has made this distinction before. He has manifested this distinction at times, even in this present world, but he will do it in its finality, in its ultimate clarity on the day of judgment. Isn't this what God did in Genesis chapter 6 through 9? When God destroyed the world with a global flood, did it not become obvious to everyone that Noah was righteous and those who perished in the flood were wicked? Right? What was true beforehand became abundantly clear during and after the flood. Right? Because before the flood ever occurred, it was said of Noah that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Whereas the rest of the world, in contrast to Noah, was described as wicked with every intention of the thoughts of the heart, only evil continually. So in God's sight, before the flood, there existed a distinction between Noah, the righteous man, and the rest of the world. But this distinction was not clearly seen before the flood, but then it was without any doubt exhibited by God. It was made known in this present world when God spared Noah and his family as a man spares his son in contrast to the wicked who were destroyed by the flood. Also, this distinction was exhibited in the days of Abraham in Genesis 18 and 19. When God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, who is a righteous man, was spared from the destruction by God. In contrast to the men of Sodom, God spared Lot as a man spares his son, but he rained down fire and brimstone upon the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. So that distinction that was there, it was in the mind of God. It was known by him before the event became clearly manifested whenever he destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he delivered and saved Lot from that same destruction. Also, was this not seen in the time of Moses? In the contrast between Egypt and Israel. When God sent his plagues upon Egypt, he was sparing Israel from many of those same plagues especially the death of the firstborn. Those who put the blood over their doorpost, over their house, they were spared, whereas those who did not, the destroyer came and killed the firstborn son. So this distinction has been manifested at times by God in the history of the world. But on the day of judgment, it will be clearly seen and it will be final. The final ultimate outcome for the righteous and for the wicked will be clearly made by God when he takes the righteous as his treasured 
possession and when he rejects the wicked and casts them into the fires of hell. Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verse 4. Psalm 11, verse 4. says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So the Lord loves the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. That is true now. And that truth will be manifested on the day of judgment. Now, what does this have to do with us then in this present life? Well, in this life, we should observe as best we can this distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And we can identify who is righteous and who is wicked by who serves God and who does not serve God. So when we identify this, when this becomes clear to us, then in terms of the godless, in terms of the wicked, in terms of those who do not serve God, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. This should be our attitude and the way that we should be toward them. 2 Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There, he says, we have to make a separation. We have to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Don't be unequally yoked with them, with those who are unbelievers. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Come out from among them, says the Lord. Now, come out in what sense? He doesn't mean come out and let's go buy some land up in the mountains and we'll build a commune up there and we'll never have anything to do with the world again. He cannot mean it in that sense. He means it in the sense, don't take part in their sins. Don't take part in the sins of the nation. This is as those who feared God did here. They rejected the sins of the rest of the nation. They didn't leave the land of Israel and go find a desert wilderness and build a commune over there and then live by themselves out there. But they rejected the sins of the rest of the nation and they did not take part in those sins. And this is what we should do as well. We have to reject the sins of the nation, and as we have opportunity, call them to repent of their sins and to live a godly life. Then in terms of the righteous, Psalm 101, verse 6. Psalm 101, verse 6. I will look with favor on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. This is how we should be toward the righteous. This is who we should have our closest friendships with, our closest associations with. We should look with favor upon them. They should dwell with us, right? We should walk with them. 
right? They should minister to us and we should minister to them. So as best we can in this life, we should observe and live according to this distinction. Reject the wicked and their sins and have as our companions the righteous that we might encourage them and that they might encourage us to love and good deeds. But we also recognize that in this life, it is impossible to be completely separate from the wicked, right? Unless, again, we go find a cave, dig a hole, live in that hole, never come out and never see another person in this life, that we are going to be around wicked people to an extent. We have to work with them. We have to go to school with them. They're living in our neighborhood. We go to the grocery store with them. We even have some of them in our families. So it is impossible to avoid completely. But as best we can, we observe the distinction. We don't let them influence us. We call them to repent. And we have as our closest allies in this life, those who are righteous. And then ultimately, on the day of judgment, God will separate with perfection. According to his wisdom, according to what he knows about men, according to his justice and his righteousness, he will make the final, ultimate separation between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous will go to eternal life and the wicked to eternal shame and contempt. And we'll conclude with Matthew 13. Matthew 13, this is what it says. And I say that it's impossible to completely, because even Noah, on the boat with just his family, Even he wasn't surrounded by completely righteous people because on that boat with him was his son, Ham, who was a godless man. Matthew 13, verse 24. says, He then put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest... And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then if we look down to verse 36, we have the interpretation. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy has sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So they both grow together in this world, in this life. And then ultimately on the day of judgment, what will God do? He will send his angels out 
They will gather the elect, they will gather the wheat and put it into the barn of God, and then they will gather the weeds or the chaff, and they will throw them into the lake of fire. And this is what will happen on that day of judgment. And this is what we have to anticipate. We have to live according to these truths and these realities. And the only thing that matters in this life is that on that day of judgment, that we be separated with the sheep that we are not consigned with the goats, that we are allotted by God as those who are righteous, right? those who are children of God, that God spares us as a man spares his son. And if this will be true of us, then what must we do in this life? We must repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We have to listen to the word of God. We have to fear the Lord. We have to esteem his name. We have to repent of our sins and we have to live a godly life and then attach ourselves with other men and women who have the same desire and encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And then what is the most important thing for our children? It is not their education. It is their religious education. But it is not that they get into Ivy League schools. That would be the worst thing that you could do. Those places, are, they're insane, these people up there. They let men swim in uh, women's events, right? And dominate all the women, these people. So we don't want our kids going to those places. It is not that they make a lot of money. It is not that they are successful and they have fame and fortune in this life. Why would we want that for our children? What is the most important thing for our children? To know the Lord, to fear God, to esteem his name, to repent of their sins, to trust in Christ, right? To live a godly life. Right? That is what we should desire for our children more than anything else. And how will they know these things if we're not teaching them the word of God? This is what we must be committed to doing. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing in this life is worth it. So what must we do? Repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Live a godly life. Do it now. Obey God. Walk in his ways. And then on that day, God will make it clear that we are his treasured possession when he separates us as a man separates the sheep from the goats. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, how it so clearly teaches us of unseen future realities. Lord, of things that have not occurred yet, Yet, Lord, we know that they are going to occur because we have them written for us in your holy word. Lord, we have them delivered to us by your prophets and your apostles, Lord, who were led and instructed. Lord, not according to their own wisdom or their own thoughts, but they were led by your Holy Spirit. So we know that what they have spoken, what they have written, is true because it comes from you, from the only true God. Lord, who is truth, and there is no lie in you. You are light, there is no darkness. Everything you say is true. Every word of yours will be proven true. Lord, we know that there is a day of judgment. Lord, we know that on that day you will separate men, either into sheep or goats, into wheat or chaff, the righteous or the wicked, believers or unbelievers, children of God or children of the devil. Lord, the one will be spared and the other one will perish. Lord, we know that this is coming. And yet, 
we are so often, our, our eyes are diverted, our attention is elsewhere, we're not thinking about these things, we're not living according to these things. So Lord, help us to be steadfast and movable, to keep our eyes set upon this, so that while we're living in this present life, Lord, we would detest our sin and the sins of others. Lord, that we would be encouraging each other to love and good deeds. Lord, strengthening our weak hands and our feeble needs so that we might do what is good and right in your sight. So Lord, teach us, Lord, not to love this world. Lord, not to believe the lies of the devil, that it is vain to serve you. But Lord, keep us always fixed, Lord, upon your word and your truth. And Lord, may we by faith, Lord, observe those things that are still future, the day of judgment and the eternal rewards for the righteous and the punishment for the wicked. Lord, that we might keep our feet from every evil path and that we might do those things that are pleasing to you. Lord, also we pray for our children that you've given to us. Lord, we pray more than anything for their salvation. Lord, that they would come to know you. Lord, that they would walk in your ways, that the faith that is in us would be in them as well. Lord, what good will it do for them? Lord, if we teach them how to have riches and success in this world, but we don't teach them how to please you, how to be reconciled to you. Lord, how to avoid the wrath of God that's coming upon this world. Lord, how could we be so calloused and uncaring for our own children as to not instruct them in the things of God? So Lord, we pray that you would Confer this blessing, Lord, not only upon us, but also on our children, our grandchildren, Lord, to many generations. And Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, we pray that you would raise up, Lord, many righteous among us, and that you would gather more righteous to us, Lord, that we might serve you together in fear and trembling. So, Lord, help us, Lord, to know your will, and Lord, give us the faith, the strength, Lord, to obey your will and to do those things that are pleasing to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.